those expenses included three tickets to a Britney Spears concert at the Planet Hollywood Casino. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know we're laughing, but what really sucks is I'm sure that there were so many employees at this credit union that you know, we're working hard and probably we're not getting paid very much. And then you just have these people who are like, let's turn the money machine on. Let's party. Welcome to Lawyers Behaving Badly. I'm Karen Delaney. And I am Jennifer Judge. How are you doing, KP? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tired. Let me put it this way. And I feel like this is, if you celebrate Christmas, this is taboo to say, but November and December, not my favorite months of the year. There's a lot I enjoy about the holidays and I'm not miserable the whole time, but it is stressful and it is a lot. So I am glad that Christmas is over. We had a great little Christmas. Kids got some scooters. You know, it was just a nice, quiet day. I am glad that it is done. I worked until 6 p.m. the Friday before Christmas Eve. Um, You know, Christmas Eve was Saturday. I thought I'd take Friday off. I ended up working till 6 p.m. That was a really long day. So I never really like got a chance to get in the Christmas spirit. Before that, um, we also had a very nice little Christmas. Both our families are here in town. So we spent time with them. But then this week, I basically have been like a chaos monster of doing nothing. And like my kids are running fair all around the house. And... You know, they'll come downstairs at seven and they'll be like, should we have dinner? And I'm like, yeah, go make yourself something. And they're nine and 10. So like they can make some certain things, but they also like maybe the state expects me to feed them at regular (laughs) intervals still, but we're just, we're not there. I've just, I need a week. So that's what I haven't showered in two days. Like it's been, it's been rough. Hey girl, right there with you. A time was had and now we're all trying to recover and I'm trying to dig out of client work because we are, we just had Christmas, but now we are about to drive up to St. Louis for New Year's because I have family up there and I have friends from law school who are still there. And so we're going to go visit everybody, but we're leaving tomorrow, which is a Thursday. And so I'm trying to dig out of client work before I go wrangle the kids and all that. And unfortunately, mine are not old enough to tell to just go forage in the kitchen. (laughs) So one day, one day. So selfish of them to require you to make them meals. (laughs) You know, one day I'll just throw a box of frozen chicken nuggets at them and tell them to figure it out. But that's not today. So I'll tell you the next part of your life begins when your kid can go get frozen chicken nuggets and throw it in the air fryer and make it himself. It's pretty clutch to be able to do that now. That sounds extraordinary. And I can't wait for the day. I swear they have vegetables sometimes though. Like I swear. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, they'll be fine. I mean, you and I grew up at a time when people just didn't drink water. So if we could make it through the 80s and 90s, a thousand percent dehydrated, like shriveled little raisins in the sun... Our kids are going to be fine. (laughs) At least my kids drink water. That's what my mantra is going to be this week. They're not getting any vegetables, but man, are they hydrated. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have a fun little hot topic for us today before we dive into your main topic, which by the way, I have no idea what you're about to tell me about, except that it maybe involves a judge. And I am very, very excited. But I have to ask whether you have heard about what Madison Square Garden in New York is doing to law firms that sue it. 
I know the headline of this because I think approximately a hundred people sent it to me when it, <laughs> when it broke and they were like, you need to talk about this on the podcast. And it was just when I was in like that work coma and I couldn't get my head above water. So I literally know the headline and nothing else about it. This is a truly aspirational level of petty. I mean, shoot for the moon and you might end up among the stars and Madison Square Garden is there. They have instituted a policy where if a law firm sues the corporate entity that owns Madison Square Garden, which I think is just called Madison Square Garden Incorporated or parent company, I don't know what it's called, but we'll call it MSG. If a law firm sues the company that owns MSG, say, because somebody slipped and fell and hurt themselves, so they sue Madison Square Garden to get their medical bills paid, MSG sends a letter to the law firm telling them that every single lawyer at that firm is banned from Madison Square Garden. And it doesn't matter if you are a lawyer working on the slip and fall case, or you're just some trust and estates lawyer who does wills for people. You are banned from Madison Square Garden. You will not be seeing the Knicks. The Rangers play there too. You will not be going to see Jerry Seinfeld. None of that. You are banned. But you're not just banned from Madison Square Garden, you are banned from all venues that the corporate entity owns. So that includes <laughs> Radio City Music Hall, which is a mile away from Madison Square Garden. It includes the Beacon Theater on Broadway. It includes the Chicago Theater in Chicago. <laughs> this is a historic level of petty. It is. It's amazing. That's why we had to talk about it because I was like... I, I, I don't know who came up with this idea, but it really goes in the Pettiness Hall of Fame. Oh, wait, I just need to take a moment because the fact that not only do they ban these people, but they send a letter, like the letter is what puts it over the top because they're like, just so you know, here are the results of your actions. <laughs> Did you know that somebody else at your law firm sued us? <laughs> And I saw a quote recently from MSG's outside counsel that this covers at least 90 law firms. And I've seen at least one letter. Well, I've seen two letters that MSG's general counsel sends to law firms. They don't say anything about refunds either. It just says, hey, these tickets are revocable at will. We revoke every ticket. Anybody at your firm has, have a good life. <laughs> so like if you have season tickets for the next, I don't know, are you just... Are they refunding you or they're just like, sorry, we revoke it. Bye. I think you're shit out of luck. So like, I think you're just out of luck. I don't know. So, you know, and I'd wonder like, why are they doing this? MSG's theory, apparently, is that there are ethical rules that prohibit attorneys from having contact with represented parties. And you and I obviously are familiar with this because you see it most often in litigation, where if you're representing a party in litigation... You can't just call up the other party and talk to them directly. You have to go through their attorney. And I've had the experience, I'm sure you've had the experience too in litigation where the other party may call us directly mm -hmm. and we have to tell them, hey, I can't talk to you. Your lawyer needs to be on the line with you or you need to have your lawyer call me directly. And then you have to go through this whole thing of letting their lawyer know that they reached out and you didn't talk to them and all that kind of stuff. It also comes up for me a lot too now in my current practice because I'm a solo and I negotiate a lot of contracts for my clients. And it's not unusual for the other party to the contract to want to have a call. 
And I always have to validate whether there's going to be a lawyer on the call. And if not, you know, I either decline to be on the call or there are various hoops that I have to jump through to make sure that I'm not violating my ethical obligations. So this is something that we all know very well as attorneys. So MSG's theory, though, is that (laughs) somehow by banning every single lawyer at a law firm where some of the lawyers are representing parties that are adverse to MSG, from every single venue, no matter how unrelated to the particular lawsuit, MSG is protecting itself from hypothetical future violations of these other attorneys' ethical obligations. Thoughts? It's definitely a creative argument. Um. <laughs> I guess it's some billionaire that owns James the parent, yes. James Dolan. Yeah. Who is, by the way, legendarily petty. So this tracks. I mean, basically, my assumption is he probably was like, fuck these assholes. I don't want him. They, I don't want him in my venue. Do it. And they're like, exactly. If you sue me, you don't have to see my shit, is basically what he was saying. And so the general counsel for MSG was like, okay. <laughs> and this is where it kind of got interesting for me. I saw at least on the headline or the snippets of them, and maybe you're going to talk about it. How do they enforce this? Ban. How do they know who is coming into there? Because think about all the secondhand ticket market there is out there. How do you know that the person who bought the ticket is the actual person going into the stadium? And I guess this makes sense in hindsight, but they apparently have Las Vegas casino level surveillance and facial recognition technology. So they have been using facial recognition technology to enforce these bans. And what they do is we all as attorneys have our pictures up on LinkedIn or up on our firm websites. And so they go to the law firm websites. They get pictures of every single attorney, store them internally somewhere. And then they run facial recognition on every single person coming into their venues, bump them up against the pictures they've collected from their ban list. And if they get a match, they stick security on them. So there was a story recently about an attorney who was with her daughter's Girl Scout troop on a trip to see the Rockettes. And they were in line and I think they were outside Radio City Music Hall waiting to go inside or they may have been in that, you know, the line you have to go through to get your bags checked or whatever. And security pulled her aside and said to her, you are so-and-so, you work at XYZ Law Firm, you are banned from this venue, you have to leave. And she's there with her seven-year-old, her seven-year-old daughter for this trip that they've all been looking forward to, this special event. And she has to scramble and figure out what to do. And, And I don't know if she left her daughter with the rest of the troop, but they did not let her go inside. She had to leave. And I also, I don't want to get too specific here because I don't want to break any rules, but this also came up in an attorney mom group that you and I are a part of probably about a month ago where somebody asked, hey, is anybody aware of this policy? My husband found out he's banned from from Madison Square Garden. And like, we don't know why. I guess his firm represents somebody adverse to them. We were all like, wow, that's weird. This has also raised questions just about how generally unregulated facial recognition technology is and how it's being used by private parties like MSG. And MSG has actually been sued twice recently related to this policy, as far as I know. 
And the theory there is basically that New York has a civil rights law that says if you're a private venue owner and somebody has a ticket, if they're otherwise acting appropriately, you cannot deny them entry. You have to honor that ticket. This also came up in a Delaware lawsuit where there's a big shareholder fight in Delaware right now related to the merger of two companies controlled by the family that owns MSG. I think that maybe some attorneys involved in that lawsuit got banned. I'm not exactly sure how it came up, but there was this big dispute in this shareholder lawsuit. And the judge in Delaware said the ban was, quote, the stupidest thing I've ever read. (laughs) Which is just a ringing endorsement. And then another New York judge actually entered an injunction against MSG at the beginning of December, saying that they can't refuse entry to attorneys at a law firm called Davidoff, Hutcher, and Citron. Not addressing the practice generally, but just as it relates to these attorneys. That judge said in his ruling that, quote, there appears to be no rational basis for the policy instituted by MSG except to dissuade attorneys from bringing suit. Another law firm in New York sued in mid-December. I believe they are having an injunction hearing in early January. The New York State Liquor Authority is also getting involved. So this was going to be my question. Don't you have like general admission requirements for like liquor licenses and city permits and things like that for this type of stuff? There's a general New York civil rights law, but the New York State Liquor Authority said in their advisory letter to MSG, that denying paying customers entry might violate MSG's liquor license, requiring the premises to otherwise be open to the public. So now the New York State Liquor Authority is threatening disciplinary action against MSG. All MSG has done throughout the course of this is basically double down on their position and be like, well, we don't think it violates this law. We don't think it violates our liquor license. And we're going to keep sending these letters. Good luck. So we may have to do a deeper dive on this one day, but I wanted to talk about it for our little hot toppy because, again, this is Hall of Fame level pettiness. It is creepy the way that they're enforcing it. I'm sure it's like that experience that the one attorney had with her daughter. Like, that's really sad. But there's also a part of me that really loves this because it's so insanely petty. (laughs) I think if 2022 has taught us anything, it is that billionaires can be even more petty than the rest of us. And they will harbor a fucking grudge to the grave. I mean, they have the resources, right? They're like, I don't care. Sue me. Whatever. It's a curious audience to enforce this against, specifically law firms, because if there's one thing a law firm is going to do, it's going to file a lawsuit. Like, you pick the wrong people to think that they're going to take that line down. So I can't wait for the litigation. And the voyeurism of watching all of this unfold. Thank you, James Dolan and MSG, for, if nothing else, giving us some lovely podcast material. (laughs) We salute you. It's a lot more entertaining than watching the Knicks, from what I've heard. So (laughs) it gives us that. (laughs) Well, thank you, KP, for that. And now we're going to transition to our main story of the week. And this one, I know I've kind of kept you in the dark on it. And... I texted you yesterday. I was giggling to myself as I was typing out my notes for this episode because it is so ridiculous. So I cannot wait for us to discuss this. This week, we're introducing our first lawyer and judge behaving badly. And the overarching theme of this story is one we've talked about so far many times. 
don't be so stupid as to think you can talk to cops without a lawyer. Oh, no. Yes. Even if you're a CEO, even if you're a lawyer, even if you're a sitting judge, don't talk to cops without a lawyer. I would say especially if you're a sitting judge. This is always, and we'll get to this, we'll talk about it, I'm certain. You would think people like a judge would know better, you know, but there is a hubris involved, I think, but we'll talk about that more. So we're going to discuss former New York State Judge Sylvia Ash. Miss Ash has been the subject of much news. And because of that, and because there's been press releases about her, I don't feel the need to make her anonymous like we normally do. And honestly, there's, I think, some hint of, like we said, you should probably know better if you're a judge entrusted by the state to make major decisions for its citizens. I mean, yeah, there's a much higher standard that applies to you than just the rest of us garden variety attorneys. Exactly. Miss Ash was a lawyer, and in 2006, she became a New York State judge in the Kings County Civil Court. She eventually works her way up to presiding judge of Kings County Supreme Court's Commercial Division. And for those of you who aren't familiar with New York law, this is literally the extent to which I'm familiar with New York laws. I know this difference. They use the term Supreme Court for a lot more than just their highest court of last resort. Um, their trial courts are referred to as Supreme Court. So she was not a quote unquote Supreme Court justice in the way that you're thinking about it, but she was a high up judge in the New York court system. In addition to being a judge, Miss Ash was a board member of the Municipal Credit Union. The MCU is a nonprofit financial institution, and it is the oldest in the state and one of the oldest in the country. And membership in the credit union is available to New York City state and employees and their families and employees of hospitals, nursing homes, things like that. And it's a nonprofit, so it's governed and overseen by a board of directors, in addition to a supervisory committee, which is made from members of the credit union that is supposed to function as like a check and balance on the board. Essentially, you have credit union members who are supposed to review and approve the board actions to ensure that the board is always taking actions in the best interest of the credit union's members. So they're a member of the National Credit Union Association. It functions like the FDIC. We've briefly talked about the FDIC, but basically they insure losses up to a certain amount. And it's supposedly run by the book, just like any other credit union. In 2017, the New York State Regulator for Financial Institutions, the New York Department of Financial Services, conducted an examination on the MCU. I don't know if you've had any exposure to the New York Department of Financial Services. I very fortunately have not. In a prior life, I did work for a company that was regulated by the New York DFS. And of regulators, these people do not mess around. They're extremely intelligent and they're extremely passionate about protecting New York consumers from, you know, financial institutions doing bad things and ensuring compliance. They are extremely focused on compliance and will exact, you know, sanctions and consent orders and things like that. They're basically, they're one of those regulators when you talk about you don't want to piss these people off. They're real high up there. <laughs> so they uncovered in the exam deficiencies in the oversight functions of the board and the supervisory committee. And what kind of deficiencies did they discover? So many that they called the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, dear. Let's introduce Cam Wong. Cam Wong was the CEO of the Municipal Credit Union and started that in 2007. And prior to that, he was the CFO. He basically spent most of his professional career at the credit union. 
You know what's, can I stop you? You know what's so funny about this is that when you first started talking about this credit union, I thought about asking you and I didn't whether we were going to find out that this was just an incredibly dysfunctional organization. Oh man, strap in. And now I'm like, oh, <laughs> strap in. okay, it was. Check, check, check done. Got it. <laughs> it's a real good gig to be the CEO of the MCU in part because Wong embezzled millions of dollars from them. What? Yes. And again, credit unions, unlike banks, are not for profit. The entire point of a credit union is that if you have excess profits or revenue or something like that, it gets distributed back to the members. That's the entire point of the credit union. But no, Wong was able to create a very good gig for himself. In 2018, his annual salary of the CEO was almost 700000 which let's also stop. That's a pretty legit CEO salary for a nonprofit. That's huge. Yes. He was entitled to an annual bonus and a company car. The contract called for one leased car, but in 2018, Wong had three. Uh, Mercedes-Benz E-Class, a Maserati Gran Turismo, and a brand new Ferrari California T. Nonprofit things, you know, standard nonprofit things. <laughs> and that's crazy because usually company cars, I mean... It's a Civic or a... Uh, well, you're not driving like the Ford Focus or whatever, but I mean, it might be like a Mercedes SUV. I mean, or something a little bit nicer, but you said a Maserati? I feel like I hallucinated just for a moment. A Maserati Gran Turismo and a Ferrari California T, which is the convertible version of the Ferrari. I just like dissociated out of my body. Okay. <laughs> and so there's both a board of directors and some like advisory council that should have been monitoring this to be like, hey, we're already paying this guy $700,000 and we're buying him like Maseratis. Maybe we're not effectively exercising our fiduciary obligations to the credit union. Oh, just wait. Were they all driving Maserati? Never mind. Okay. <laughs> So as part of their investigation, they discovered that Wong submit invoices for dental work that was either done on him or paid by him that needed reimbursement. And none of that dental work ever occurred. Why would they be reimbursed? Like from a health insurance plan, why would they be reimbursing it? Like why would the credit union be reimbursing it? Yeah, well, we'll get into it because he he got himself several hundred thousand dollars worth of reimbursements for this dental work. I don't know how much dental work experience you've had. But have you spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on yourself on dental work? I mean, it feels like it, honestly. Sometimes when you go in, <laughs> they're like, <laughs> let's get you an estimate. And you're like, oh, how much could it possibly be? And they're like, you know, the numbers are sky high. But no, even with our uh, dental coverage that I have a fairly low opinion of, we have not managed to rack up hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, you better have a mouth made out of pure platinum. He's got a platinum grill. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> You're gonna be shocked to hear this. It's a very silly as far as embezzlement scams go. His contract that he had with the credit union required them to provide dental insurance and reimbursement for any uninsured dental work. So from 2013 to 2018, he requested reimbursement for $450,000 in uninsured dental work that he received. Are you going to get into like the mechanics of this? I mean, did he fabricate invoices? Was there a fake dental company? Just wait. He required uh, the I can't. <laughs> <laughs> he required the reimbursements be made immediately and that they weren't made through standard payroll deposits. He only accepted live handwritten checks from the company. What? Oh, so I have a flag here that says, do you see any red flags yet? <laughs> oh, they're just billowing in the wind. 
And the CFO and the CHRO requested some sort of substantiation for these. So he did submit fake invoices that, you know, when the investigators got these, they subpoenaed documents from the dentist they were purportedly from. And when they compared them against the real invoices, the fake invoices had misspellings, had different fonts from the real invoices. And for one dentist were for services that were performed after that dentist had retired. This is actually a pretty common corporate scam, by the way, to either fabricate invoices from an existing vendor of the company or to create, I mean, to essentially fabricate a vendor and submit invoices from that fake vendor. One of the reasons internal control processes are so important. This is, and again, at a prior life, I reviewed a lot of like fraud investigations, you know, and you would have people that would save on the desktop of their laptop the labels of the companies they were creating the fake invoices for. Well, that's not very smart. I mean, these are always very smart criminals. Um, Wong, who was very sensible and realized that those reimbursements may have an income tax effect on him. So he also grossed up his fake reimbursements to account for the income tax that he would pay on them. And this wasn't a small amount. He grossed up his fake invoices by an additional 250000 <laughs> Because when you're embezzling, you want your embezzlement to be income tax neutral. Why should you have to take the hit for a crime someone noticed? (laughs) This wasn't the only embezzlement he he focused on. He also used long-term disability insurance to create additional payments for himself. So what he did is he negotiated with the credit union and told them, basically, in my contract, it says that you'll provide for long-term disability for me. But through my calculations, I have determined that a policy would cost about a million dollars. And instead of you paying an insurance company a million dollars, why don't you just pay me $200,000, which would be the payout of the policy if I ever die, and you just pay that to me directly and we skip the middleman. He ended up cashing checks totaling a lot more than $200,000. In fact, over five years, he directed the CFO to issue him long-term disability payment checks for more than $3.6 million. These were never approved by the board and they were never written into his contract. And what he would do is each year he would provide economic models, and I put those in scare quotes, that demonstrated it was cheaper to pay him directly than to get a long-term disability policy for him. But actually the only evidence he ever got from a third party was one broker he talked to about long-term disability and that broker told him that a policy that he wanted would likely cost $20,000 a year. So basically what he did was he just made these economic models up out of whole cloth. And so the board was like, oh, sure, okay, checks out. I think this still all flew below the board's radar at this point. So I'm getting this information from the complaint that was filed against him in the Southern District of New York. My favorite part, is that the FBI agent describes how he interviewed Wong as part of this investigation. Pause here. Don't talk to cops. That includes the FBI. They are cops. Yeah. (laughs) Wong immediately called that insurance broker that he spoke to and tried to convince him that the broker provided all those fake models and information to him. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Basically, he was like, remember how you gave me all these models? And the broker was like, no, man, I talked to you about this one thing. And he's like, no, but if you really think about it, like this is how it works and this is what the numbers are. And the broker essentially refused, explained that Wong's models had no basis in reality. And his response was, 
to Wong. If I'm an athlete, I want you as my agent. This is so ridiculous. I respect the audacity, to be quite honest. Again, if you're talking to the FBI, assume that they know everything already. They know that the next thing you do the minute they walk out the door is that you call the broker and convince him to help you obstruct justice. Hey, bud, do you want to go to jail too? I think I might like a friend. (laughs) So he made a terrible mistake. When the FBI agents introduced themselves and said they were performing an investigation, he had a little chat. And that little chat is now memorialized in the federal complaint against him. So don't do that. In that same little chat with the FBI agents, Wong told them that the board of directors had approved all long-term disability payments to him and that they were contained in his employment contract. Four days after that chat with the FBI agents, Wong called a board meeting and told the board that they needed to retroactively approve all the long-term disability payments to him. He's like, we can fix this. And the board, for this time at least, didn't. Like they basically, I think they'd gotten wind at this point that there was an investigation. And so they did not approve them. Lest you be worried that those were the only embezzlement schemes that he had. He had several more. This guy is busy. He's very busy. He faked car repairs for the cars that the credit union leased to him. Um, For his E-Class Mercedes, he requested a $25,000 reimbursement for repairs, but at the same time made an insurance claim and insurance paid him out (laughs) that amount. So he basically doubled it. This one might be my favorite. Multiple times in 2013, he withdrew $500 from ATMs across New York City using a credit union credit card. Um, that was issued for business expenses. When the accounting department finally caught on to this and they asked him what he was doing, he told them that he was, quote, testing the ATMs and ensuring that the card worked. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's amazing. He made the CHRO and the CFO personally pay for visas, tuition, textbooks, housing, and living expenses for two relatives of his friend. What? The kids were originally interns at the credit union and they wanted to stay in New York City. So he had CHR and the CFO personally pay these expenses, which were more than $100,000, including rent for an apartment that was $5,300 a month, and basically told them, pay it personally, and then I'll make sure the credit union reimburses you for this. My brain is breaking. (laughs) Here's where I stopped and I was like, is it a cult of personality with this guy? Like, why are you in that... I, why would you agree to this? How do you agree to this? <laughs> My first thought was, why do you agree to this? My second thought was, how much money are these people making? Mm-hmm, that they can swing an extra 100000 <laughs> Right. That they have all this extra cash laying around that they can be like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll just pay it. And I'm certain the company will pay me back like NBD. This is, again, where I was giggling to myself as I typed this up. He. From 2011 to 2017, he requested and received cash advances totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars each year and never provided any type of invoice or documentation from them. So when the CFO asked Wong to provide some sort of documentation because he made at one point like a $40,000 request, Wong told the CFO he was, quote, too busy to provide the documentation. And if the credit union couldn't provide him the loan, then the CFO needed to personally loan him the money. And the CFO did. The CFO did. What? (laughs) I don't understand. I don't understand. Number one, this is a financial institution that has zero corporate controls as it relates to at least the people at the higher echelons. I mean, 
I'm assuming that if I came in as a credit union customer, then I probably couldn't do anything that, you know, violates the rules. Like they're going to hold their customers' feet to the fire. But as it relates to the executives, it's just like the money spigot is on. Come fill up your buckets. Wow. My mind, like I said, my mind is kind of breaking right now. And it's again, like I have worked, I worked for a financial institution for seven years. Like the lack of controls here is stunning. I haven't even been in the financial services industry. And even I know that it is extremely heavily regulated and you do not want to mess up. (laughs) So the CFO gives him the loan. And then there's a footnote in the complaint that Wong didn't pay back the loan for two years. And he finally paid it back. And then the three days after he repaid the loan, he asked the CFO to borrow 5000 which he never repaid. The CFO loaned it to him again. He loaned him $5,000. Again? <laughs> again? Finally, his last little scheme was he took cash payments instead of taking sick days, uh, which were far more than the policy or um, his contract provided. So at the credit union, it said over the course of your tenure, as an employee here, you can accrue a maximum of 70 unused sick days during your employment and you can, you know, cash that in essentially when you leave. He accrued allegedly 400 sick days and cashed those in for cash. (laughs) (laughs) So what was all the money for? What's your theory for this? I have no idea. People like this tend to just spend it on dumb stuff like buying houses or renovating houses, redecorating cars. What is he doing? Building an animal shelter? I mean, I doubt it. It's all going to sick children. It all went to St. Jude's. No. (laughs) From 2013 to 2018, Wong spent almost $4 million on lottery tickets. He was addicted to lottery gambling. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So he doesn't even have a nice house to show for this? It's all just lottery tickets. He lives in a ranch in like, I think Long Island is what they said. Like he doesn't live in Manhattan. He lives in his family ranch, which is, there's nothing wrong with it. But if you're embezzling this much money, you'd expect some like ostentatious displays of wealth. No, the FBI interviewed the two like gas station owners closest to Wong's home. And they said every weekend he would sit in the gas station spend thousands of dollars buying scratch-off lottery tickets and playing them in the gas station and then buying more. Wow. Okay, so he has just a completely out-of-control gambling addiction. Yeah, it was a total addiction. Starting in 2007, he spent $100 every day on lottery tickets, and then that increased basically into the thousands every single day. He was also addicted to hydrocodone, and so he would use that and apparently drink like codeine cough syrup while he was sitting in his desk in the office. And eventually he pled guilty and he was sentenced to 5.5 years in prison. So in his sentencing memo that his lawyers prepared, basically explaining what the you know sentencing decision for the judge should be in his plea deal, he mentioned that he was aided by a crooked MCU supervisory board member and that you know other board members assisted him in this scheme. And so now we can discuss Miss Sylvia Ash. Okay, here we go. Miss Sylvia Ash was the chair of the board while this was going down. She was also at that time a sitting judge. In May 2015, she asked the State Committee on Judicial Ethics whether she should serve as the chair of the board of the MCU and whether it would create a potential conflict of interest for cases in her court. And the committee told her, yeah. 
it would create a conflict of interest because you're the chief judge of the commercial division where you hear cases involving the credit union. You need to resign from the board. And so she was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'll resign. And then didn't. She's, she's like, but wait, what if I don't want yeah. to? <laughs> she, I mean, she also has a pretty sweet gig. So she continues to hear cases in her court where the credit union was a party and basically didn't resign from the credit union until the state judicial commission filed a complaint against her. Let's be very clear. That is an obvious violation of judicial ethics to hear the case of a party where you sit on their board. I mean, there's just no question about that. Like, that's so bad. Sometimes there's gray areas in a lot of these. This is like the example they give in textbooks of things you cannot do as a judge. This is like a, hey, dum-dums, this is such an obvious example that you would learn in like law school ethics 101. Like it's too obvious of a question to be on the MPRE. So membership on the board of directors of the credit union was a volunteer and unpaid position. Amazingly, however, Ash had incurred significant expenses as a board member and required that the credit union reimburse her for those. In 2015, she was reimbursed $70,000 for conferences she attended with a guest in Cancun, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and the Greek Isles. So we've been or seen many conferences in our days. How often do you see a conference in the Greek Isles? I mean, I haven't gone looking for one, but is there a nonprofit that's willing to pay to send me? Because I can start looking. Yeah, I would love to give back. And in the course of giving back, go to Santorini. I'm just yeah. throwing it out there. <laughs> she was reimbursed for all of her Apple devices that she used, which included a phone, a watch, because obviously you need an Apple watch for your volunteer board membership. And she was reimbursed for tickets to professional sporting events and provided sweet access at professional games. Even after she resigned from the board in 2015, she received money from the credit union, like reimbursement for airfare, hotel, food, drink, and entertainment expenses for a conference in Las Vegas. Those expenses included three tickets to a Britney Spears concert at the Planet Hollywood Casino. <laughs> I know we're laughing, but what really sucks is I'm sure that there were so many employees at this credit union that, you know, were working hard and probably were not getting paid very much. And then you just have these people who are like, let's turn the money machine on. Let's party. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the money that they're spending is allegedly going back to these people who are state employees, hospital workers, doctors, nursing home attendants. This is people's money. Yeah, real people's money that they're stealing. It didn't bother her because she used the suite all the time at professional baseball games, charging thousands in food and alcohol. This is, again, after she left the board and personalized cakes. They made sure and made the complaint that she was personalizing cakes at the professional suites. That makes me really embarrassed for her. (laughs) At the time she received these gifts, she was a sitting judge. And each year, judges are required to file with the state financial disclosure forms. And it's so... Again, like we talked about, it's very clear where the judge's income comes from, payments they receive, gifts, things like that. Yeah. I mean, ideally, you want your judges that are deciding cases to be above even the appearance of impropriety. Yeah. And, you know, most judges you talk to, like, they only invest in mutual funds and things like that. They won't even hold individual stocks in case, you know, the company whose stock they own comes in front of them. They can't even be an appearance of impropriety or a conflict of interest. Right. You really just want to be above reproach. Exactly. 
in the forums, the judges are also supposed to declare any boards they sit on or organizations they're affiliated with. And from 2012 to 2018, Ash never disclosed any affiliation with Municipal Credit Union or any of the payments or reimbursements that she received from them. Just a real buffet-style approach to your ethical obligations where she's like, I just don't feel like the mashed potatoes today. <laughs> it's, I'm sure I had this flag. I'm sure it was just an oversight on her part, right? Right, yeah. Just an oopsies. That's our background on Sylvia Ash and her time at the MCU. So remember, the investigation begins in 2017, and that's when Ash discovered, because Wong told her, that Wong was under federal investigation. In January 2018, two FBI agents attempted to interview Wong, and he wasn't home, but they left their business card with his wife. That night, Wong used his cell phone that was issued from the credit union to call Ash. And the next morning, Ash and Wong exchanged multiple calls, each around a minute long and one that was five minutes long. Later, that next day is when Wong spoke to the FBI agents without a lawyer the first time. After that interview, Wong and Ash immediately start texting each other. And again, the FBI has all of these. Like they go subpoena AT&T or whoever your provider is and they get these text messages. So Wong says, I have the silver tin that you may like. Do you want to come pick it up tomorrow? And she says, definitely yes. Can I pick it up in the morning? And he says, sure. And she said, sound good. I'll see you then. They were talking about a silver iPhone 10 that he was giving her from the credit union. And again, this is 2018, three years after she's resigned from the board of directors of the credit union. So the next day, Wong texted back and forth with a member of the supervisory board that says, I had a good connection with Sylvia. And then that member says, hopefully I'll hear from her. I'd like to give you some peace of mind and discuss this investigation ASAP. And so he, Wong and the board member keep texting each other. And Wong says, Sylvia remembers our conversation. She said, if anyone asks for an affidavit of our conversation, she'll sign it. She understands. I just said to her, someone is giving me trouble for the long-term disability insurance payments. And so it turns out that what Wong was telling Sylvia was, they're giving me a hassle about these long-term disability insurance payments that the board never actually approved them. They were never in my contract. And Sylvia tells him, just write up a memo that back in 2015, I approved these and I was chairman of the board and it'll all be fine. Oh, <laughs> Sylvia. So is this guy like the world's most fascinating man? I don't understand why everybody around him is like, sure, I'll, I'll help you take the fall for this. Sure. I'll I would love to commit federal crimes with you. <laughs> right. Sure. I'll give you $40,000. Sure. I'll do. Uh, what is it with this guy? I don't know. I was like, is he a cult leader? Like I was flummoxed by this. Absolutely flummoxed. If he's not a cult leader, can I suggest that for when he gets out of prison? Because it sounds like he'd be great at it. Maybe that's what he does in prison is he spends time. So the next day, the FBI called Wong, and this is the next day after these conversations occurred, and requested his employment contract. As he had told them, basically, these payments are reflected in my contract and that the board had approved all of them. Wong again says, oh, yeah. Okay, guys, I misspoke when we talked <laughs> the last time. <laughs> So I may have done some light criming when I lied to federal investigators. Let me just walk that back. And he tells the FBI, I misspoke. It wasn't in my contract and the board never like formally approved it. 
but Ash, who was the chair of the board at the time, orally approved those payments. So that day, Ash registered the new iPhone 10 to her account, and that will be relevant later. Sylvia's got a new phone, baby. So the day after that conversation that Wong has with the FBI, Wong gives them a memorandum that was dated January 2018, but retroactively demonstrated that Sylvia Ash agreed to the payout of approximately $3.7 million in life insurance payments to Ash in 2015. And she signed this? She signed this under penalty of perjury. Why? <laughs> she signed the affidavit for this. I've stunned you speechless. You have. No, because I, again, I just don't understand why. I mean, and you did reference at the beginning of the pod, just the hubris, I guess, of thinking like, let's all go away. It'll be fine. Ma'am, you are talking to the FBI. It's the hubris, I think. And you'll see even more. It comes up even more. So over the next several months in February, the board finally removes Wong from the CEO position and suspends him. So that supervisory board member we were talking about texted with Ash and texted her, the board just suspended Cam, exclamation point. Don't call him. They took his phone. And Ash replied, OMG, that is so wrong. It just seems like the MCU hired lawyers to do the Justice Department's job. And then the board member was like, exactly. And then the next day, Ash texted that board member, with the exception of a certain board member she named, the board is very weak and has no balls. They have no loyalty. And it's my opinion that the credit union's in-house counsel and the outside counsel were working together to get information to justify Cam's removal, to get the Justice Department to back off their investigation. They never gave Cam the benefit of the doubt, and they allowed the Justice Department to bamboozle them. She's like, hey, guys, I really would like this scam to continue because, I mean, if Cam's not getting his money, what is the rationale for? I mean, there was no rationale ever for Sylvia Ash to be getting hers after she steps off the board. But I mean, if he's gone, sounds like the gravy train is over for her, right? Yeah, exactly. He's gone and the money machine no longer goes burr. So she, <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't get her money. And so here is where Sylvia Ash makes her first critical mistake. Well, I'll take second. First was the lineup. <laughs> Are we sure on that? Because it sounds like there have been a whole line of them up to this point. First was the perjury. Second was on March 1st, she spoke with FBI investigators and was not represented by a lawyer. <laughs> she told the investigators she had served as chair of the board from 2015 through 2016 and resigned after she was appointed a justice for the commercial division. Didn't mention to the FBI all her prior conflicts of interest. She claimed in October 2015, she had a conversation about long-term disability insurance under Wong's contract. And she remembered him telling the board that it would be cheaper for him to receive the payments directly than buying a policy. She said she did not remember approving the payments Wong proposed, but that the then general counsel of the credit union told her it was okay. Mm, Yeah, sure. Throw the lawyer under the bus. Yeah, exactly. Um, She said she signed that January memorandum because Wong told her he was being investigated, but that she didn't actually read it before she signed it. No, no, Sylvia! (laughs) During that interview with the FBI, she admitted that the memo she signed was probably fabricated. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing to be like, to admit that you knew it would be used in a federal investigation <laughs> and then tell the FBI, whatever, I just signed it, like, fuck it, you know, live life, live, laugh, love, sign things you don't read. 
YOLO. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> this is the YOLOiest thing I've ever heard. Immediately after her interview with the FBI, she texted that supervisory board member that she'd be attending a social event with him and then said, pursuant to Mission Impossible, these correspondents will be deleted in five minutes. See you tomorrow. We're going to get to the fun part now. And I'm going to preface this. (laughs) Okay, I'm really excited. What's your favorite thing that you've seen during an investigation that you know the sender regretted seeing or regretted showing up in an investigation? People send a lot of dumb shit. They send a lot of dumb shit. I'll just say my favorite that I've ever seen. And I can say this because it doesn't really have to do with anything. It's not confidential. But one investigation I did, I was reviewing emails of certain employees. One of them was started talking about me in the emails. And I think I've told you this story before, but they're like, oh God, Jennifer's a total bitch. You'll learn to love her. (laughs) I hope that's on your resume. (laughs) (laughs) But just make sure it's on my tombstone. Yeah. If nothing else, it needs to be on your LinkedIn profile. Now, the big question, should we ignore grand jury subpoenas? Yellow. (laughs) Why not? Yellow. Let's yellow our way straight to jail. So eventually, after her interview with the FBI, U.S. Attorney's Office sends Ash a grand jury subpoena. And again, I have some experience in receiving these as a result of working in a financial institution. You know, they often receive grand jury subpoenas for supporting documentation for some sort of criminal case that U.S. attorneys are pursuing. So the subpoena required a production of documents and conversations and texts she had regarding the long-term disability payments. Wong's compensation and communications she had with Wong. She called the investigator and let him know that she did not have any documents that were responsive to the subpoena. A few months later, the investigator called her and they spoke for a while and she told him, listen, I don't have any responsive documents. And when I resigned from the board, I lost access to all credit union related correspondence. She told the investigator that the only text she had with Wong were happy birthday type texts, essentially, you know, very high level social texts, and that she deleted all personal texts with Wong after she received the subpoena because she didn't think there was a reason to keep them and they weren't important. Let me guess, all of this is sitting on her iPhone 10. (laughs) And she probably has like credit union email or something on her iPhone 10. So the agent immediately is like, hey, what about that phone that Wong gave you? (laughs) (laughs) And Ash is like, oh yeah, he gave it to me, but I didn't know if it was a personal phone from him or whether it was paid for by the credit union, but I just accepted it. And then she told the investigator, well, it was fine that I deleted all those texts because I never knew it was actually a federal criminal investigation. So I never knew that Wong might be being investigated criminally and these might be relevant. So it doesn't matter. What Ash didn't know is that the agents had seized Wong's phone and already had all the texts between Ash and him after he had been suspended from the board. She texted him right after he was suspended saying, So sorry to hear the sad, unbelievable news for which there is no clear legal justification. I will also be praying that this terrible ordeal will be over soon and you will be right back where you belong, running MCU as its CEO and president. And then he responded, it's totally wrong that the board only listened to the credit union's outside counsel without giving me a chance to explain or defend myself. And then Wong said, I spoke to the name of one of my criminal defense attorneys. We will fight back. And then... Ash said, I spoke to a current board member, and like me, she's a true friend who has your back. And then she said, the board chair might have an agenda. And then they talked about how disappointing the board is. An agenda like not going to jail. 
<laughs> an agenda like saving the credit union from wild misappropriation of its funds. <laughs> so now the critical question, can you ignore two grand jury subpoenas? And I'll give you my same answer. Yellow, baby. (laughs) Throw those things in the trash. Let's fuck around and find out. (laughs) So right after she has this conversation with the FBI, she's issued another grand jury subpoena. She being Sylvia Ash. Several days later, the credit union sends an email to Ash about the cell phone she has. The email says, you are advised you do not have MCU's permission or authority to wipe, delete, reset, factory restore, image or copy any of MCU's electronic devices and cited the credit union's policy manual and previous electronic agreements signed by Ash and basically told her, the phone belongs to us. Don't do anything to it. You know, we need it as part of our preservation of evidence obligations that we have. So KP, you received this email and you are you. What do you do? I'm going to fucking ignore this email and I'm going to do whatever I want. Because apparently, <laughs> that's the approach we're taking to these things. Well, you and Sylvia would get along because she literally immediately calls Apple and asks them how to wipe a phone. Look, I need to hide some evidence that I think the FBI doesn't already have. <laughs> Can you help me? And she explicitly asks how to transfer all the contents of her current iPhone 10 to another Apple device. Then shows up at a Genius Bar at an Apple store where she told the employees she would like to set up one phone with iCloud Restore and we need to wipe the second phone completely. So I don't understand. She thinks that she's going to hand them this phone that's obviously been wiped of everything and be like, ta-da, we're done, right? Thanks, guys. (laughs) The FBI is not going to be like, well, hey, what about this new phone? I love that the FBI finds out about this because they clearly issue a subpoena to Apple and Apple responds with their customer service information and all the notes and recorded call they have from when she called. So like, you cannot get away with this. She receives this, she wipes her phone. And a few days later, her lawyer reaches out to the FBI investigator. (laughs) So we have finally decided it's time to get a lawyer. The lawyer produces documents in response to the subpoena including emails from an AOL and Gmail account um, that would have been responsive under the first subpoena. Of course, she's using AOL. Of course she is. Of course (laughs) she is. She even says the AOL is her main account and the Gmail is for like small things. (laughs) I am so embarrassed for her. Okay. And you know, you know that the account address was like Judge Sylvia Ash at AOL.com. Yeah, well, I was thinking it was probably something really silly like, Silver Kitty 29 at AOL.com. <laughs> <laughs> the production did not contain any texts, as I'm sure you're shocked to hear. And we kind of talked about it. Here's the thing about federal investigators, and especially those in the Southern District. They're thorough, and they have a lot of resources at their disposal. And they've seen it all, and they know what to expect when people want to pull shenanigans And so prior to ever sending the first grand jury subpoena or the second, they had sent a preservation letter to Google for Sylvia Ash's Gmail account. Oh, nice. So the investigators knew that when she received the second subpoena, Ash went to her Gmail account and deleted all emails between her and that supervisory board member and deleted 99% of all her emails from January 2018 to June 2018. She's like, there's this one cool trick that means you'll never go to jail. And that's called destroying evidence. (laughs) Obstruction of justice. (laughs) 
So there were emails she deleted like on February 2018, that supervisory board member sent an email to Ash and to his MCU familia regarding Cam Wong and the internal investigation and the federal investigation. And in that email, the member stated, had Cam Wong been given the counsel he was entitled to at the very beginning, this would have been over. Had the credit union's outside counsel been a true counsel to all of us volunteers, this would have been over. Had the supervisory committee been assigned to this investigation, this would have been over. So I flagged this. I knew you'd catch that. A true counsel to all volunteers. That's not how this works. <laughs> the That's not how it works even a little bit. The company counsel is not your personal counsel. Someone didn't listen to their upjohn warning. <laughs> Other emails looked like when Ash emailed that same board member, FYI, got a call to talk to the Justice Department today, wants me to come to informally talk to him. <laughs> Very unsurprisingly, investigators requested a second interview with Ash after her production of emails. So in that second interview, Ash brings her counsel and she's finally learned. She reiterated her claim that she didn't know what she was signing with the January memo and she didn't read it. She said the texts that she sent Wong were supposed to be quote unquote uplifting and that they didn't contain any material information. And that she told investigators when she discussed those long-term disability payments with that general counsel of the credit union, the general counsel said it was permissible. Then investigators told her, "Uh, no, we talked to the general counsel and the general counsel said that conversation never happened. Yeah, that's the thing that is so amazing to me here is that this stuff is so easily disproved. Yes. But these people just think that the Justice Department will be like, huh, okay. Cool. All right. Well, we're done here and just go home. That seems weird. What they said, but it sure just seems to check out. Okay. <laughs> seems weird. Yeah. Yeah. And as if they're not going to start investigating the general counsel as a potential member of this conspiracy. <laughs> she told investigators the reason the credit union paid for her trip to Vegas, the one that she received all the reimbursement for after she resigned. Our Britney Spears concert. Yes. Yeah. And her Britney Spears concert was that even though she had resigned from the board by then, it was because all the tickets and arrangements were purchased prior to her resigning. Just like we said, one guess what the evidence demonstrated. (laughs) I'm going to guess that this was easily proved to be false. (laughs) Yes. She purchased all of them after she resigned, and then she backdated all of her expense reports for reimbursement. And I mean, clearly that is just theft. I mean, it's just stupid theft. Eventually, Ash did return her phone to the credit union and they immediately turned it over to the FBI and the phone was indeed wiped and there was no recovery of the phone. So that's all the evidence against Ash. What happened? She ultimately had a two-week jury trial on charges she obstructed justice and she was convicted. She was sentenced in April 2022 to 15 months in federal prison. So she goes to jail for a little bit. Yeah, she goes to jail for a little bit. And then remember the board member, the supervisory board member that was all over those texts and doesn't understand how corporate counsel works. His name was Joseph Guagliardo. He's a former NYPD officer and a member of the supervisory committee of the MCU. And Joseph created a shell security company that was allegedly providing security to MCU board members. And over the course of several years, Joseph made sure the MCU spent $250,000 with the security company, but it was actually just a shell and all the money was immediately distributed to Joseph. 
So, I mean, everybody here is just acting like this credit union is is a money machine. It's literally the money machine that goes burr. Like, it literally is just a faucet for them. He also created a shell SEO company and made sure that the MCU spent 200000 with that company. And that was, again, just immediately distributed to himself. He also was the one that provided Cam Wong with all the hydrocodone that Wong abused while he was CEO. <laughs> There's a twist I didn't see coming. And he was eventually sentenced to 27 months in prison. So, thoughts, KP? Doesn't quite seem right that the supervisory board member slash oxy drug dealer got more time than our judge, Miss mm-hmm. Sylvia Ash. I mean, I think we should be holding her to a higher standard for sure. That's wild. It was wild. In 2019, the New York DFS put the entire credit union under control, basically removed all the board and said, get the fuck out of here. We're controlling this from now on. <laughs> Definitely does seem like there could be some improvements in management here. And maybe some corporate <laughs> governance and control policies. <laughs> like just some real basic stuff. I mean, again, coming from a financial institution, it was shocking on the level of a lack of control and the ability for these people to just turn on a money faucet and receive it. And then shocking on the level of stupidity. Boundless stupidity. Yeah. And it was, it reminded me of that line from the movie. (laughs) These guys just aren't that smart. Like these people just weren't that smart. This wasn't some mastermind where people were, you know, outsmarting everything. And, you know, this wasn't some, I can't even think of, you know, something brilliant where you turn around and you're like, wow, what a scheme. This was just morons taking money from a company. Yeah. And taking money from regular everyday people who should have had it returned to them. Yes. So this conversation was everything I hoped it would be. (laughs) (laughs) I am delighted, not by the theft of money from people who, you know, hospital workers and things like that, but... What a journey we went on today. Did not see any of this coming. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if you want to tease our next episode coming up after this one. I think, and I had mentioned this at the end of the Diana Jenkins episode that we recorded with Naveen, but it turns out I jumped the gun and this episode was next in the lineup. I believe, I have not written the script yet, but I believe we will be talking about a jailhouse lawyer, a real-life jailhouse lawyer out of Oklahoma. We'll see, TBD. If not, we'll find something else to talk about. Maybe Sam Bankman-Fried will do something interesting and we'll have to talk about that. He's back in the United States flying first class with his parents to Palo Alto, so... Without his shoes on. He is definitely the type of person to take his shoes off on a plane. Well, we know he is because we've seen a picture of him flying first class without his shoes on. So anyway, who knows? We'll see. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you, especially for your reviews and all of the nice things that everybody has said about the podcast. When we started, I really thought that maybe a handful of people might listen to us sheerly out of pity or the success of our bullying efforts. But we've had more than 10,000 downloads in about six weeks. And I'm amazed by the number of people who are downloading our episodes every week and glad that everybody is having fun along with us because it's been fun to record this stuff. We've been having a pretty good time. 
It, uh, yeah, we mentioned it in the Commanders episode that we wanted a podcast without a lot of research. And then we ended up picking one with like all the research. But at the same time, every time I type up things, I'm laughing to myself, just envisioning <laughs> discussing them. I've been having so much fun doing this. And so it just, it brings me so much joy that people are enjoying listening to us just have fun talking to each other. It blows my mind. Yeah, it does blow my mind that a couple of knuckleheads like you and me could... <laughs> Make a podcast that's not for an audience just of our parents. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, this offends my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I don't even know if mine listens. That's fine. (laughs) So thank you so much, everybody. We really appreciate it. And we also do appreciate your reviews. We are hoping to attract sponsors at some point and your reviews really help us on that journey. So we appreciate it. And we will talk to you all probably in another week. Thanks, guys. 